Okay, Boker Tov, today's daf is Kuf Bet, Babakama 102, and we pick up at the very bottom of Kufal Hamid Bet, and we're in the middle of a discussion about Kedusha Shviyas, about what type of things have the sanctity of the Shemitah year, and uh, the assumption initially would have been just foods, but now the question is maybe does that also apply to things that are used for dyeing, um, or even to wood itself, and the Gemara's conclusion was was that it is things like food that Hanasanu Bioran Shaveh, that you get the benefit from them as they are being consumed, so that would include dyes. Uh, Rashi says that means because you use dyes when they get, they sort of the dye gets absorbed into the garment. It also says when you wear the garment, you're a little bit wearing out the dye. Um, but it does not include firewood or just normal branches and wood, even when a tree grows and a branch grows on Shemitah, because that's Hanasan Acher Buran. It's only after um, something, you know, burns initially and becomes like a type of a charcoal, you know, and becomes an ember. That's really when you get the benefit from it, not when it's at the moment of being consumed. Okay, so now the Gemara questions this, and it says like this. So... Amar Kra will just pick up from there, third line from the bottom, la'achla, so the Shemitah should be to you to eat, things that are like food that you uh, benefit from it when it is consumed. Yatsu Eitzim, this doesn't, this excludes normal types of uh, woods that would be used for like firewood, um, for cooking or for baking, that the benefit is after it is consumed. Uh, because you want it to more be coals. But the Gemara says, well, that's not always true about all woods. Isn't there woods of mashchan, which, you know, like, um, uh, which can mean like oil, um, that the oily woods, that their benefit and their destruction is, um, is at the same time. Now, what does this mean? Rashi says that it means, you know, oily wood that is basically used for lighting and not for making a fire, for, I mean, for making a fire to provide light, but that doesn't get burnt up, you know, quickly and isn't used for heat, for, for, for cooking, and therefore... That's exactly as it's burning and providing light, you get the benefit at the same time that it's being consumed. So it's a certain type of wood. Toso says that it's not referring to a certain type of wood, um, although the language sounds like that, but it's referring to the question of how are you using it? If you're using it to provide heat, um, or if you're using it for a certain type of cooking as opposed to baking, then you actually don't want it when it's an ember, you want it when it's a fire. So the Gemara says, isn't there a type of wood or a way you use wood that the benefit comes at the time of consumption? And therefore, shouldn't that Shemitah apply to that? So Amar Rava says, Rava, top of Kufbet Amad Aleph, Stam Eitzim Lohasakahin Omdim. While that's true, the default use of wood is for a fire, and let's say for a type of a baking fire, um, of, um, or, you know, or a type of a fire that you would use that you would want it after it turn after it becomes embers, and because that's the default, you know, that's what we're going to assume is uh, the case when you have wood that grows on shemitah. What does that mean exactly? I mean, why should that idea of stam eitzim apply even to a different type of wood? You know, like if Rashi is really talking about a certain type of a species or whatever, then that would sound like that stam is used as to provide light. Um, so uh, it really, the Gemara reads better like Tosfos that the question is what you're planning on using it for. And then, it's, that, then it makes a lot more sense. Since the default is you're going to use them for a type of wood, you know, the default of firewood or whatever is you're going to use it to get benefit after it turns to embers, even if in your particular case, you're 
you're using it when the fire is still burning, um, nevertheless, it never had Kedushas Shviyas to begin with, okay? So that's the story. So we're left still with a question, if there's wood, that the Stam would be actually to be Hanasana Bjorn Shava, maybe it would have Kedushas Shviyas, but, um, but when the Stam is not that way, then it does not have Kedushas Shviyas. Okay, now the Gemara continues, V'etzim l'hasaka tanahi, and wood used for, like, making a uh, fire is a debate of Tanayim. Now, what exactly this means is not clear. Let's read, you know, how they're going to bring this debate of Tanayim into this question of wood made for fire. Let's read the debate of Tanayim, and then we'll talk about what the Gemara might mean by this framing st- statement. The Tanya we taught in the Brisa, Eim loshim peris ishviyas lo lemishra v'lo so you cannot go ahead and use the um, you know, produce of Shemitah. Rashi says, let's say we're talking about wine from Shemitah grapes. You cannot use it for like uh, soaking your flax in it or for uh, um, you know, uh, laundering your clothing. I don't know why wine would work for laundering your clothing, but whatever the case might be. And Rebiosi allows you. So let's see what this debate is about. Um, so my time at Rabbanon, why did the rabbi say you can't? The Pasuk says, Le'achla, the lo lemishra. It has to be for eating and not for soaking your flax. Le'achla, the lo lekvusa, for eating and not for doing laundry. Rabbi Yossi, Omer, and Rabbi Yossi would say, Amakrano, the Pasuk says, Lachem, it should be for you. Le'chotzarchechem, you can use it for all your uses. It's not limited just to, think, just to eating. For Rabbanon, well, how would the rabbis respond back to the Lachem? Nami haksiv Lachem, doesn't it say Lachem? No, lachem shavin. So lachem is similar to laachla. Yes, lachem expands laachla, but it has to be similar to laachla and something that you get the benefit when you actually consume it and destroy it. So you can use shemitah produce for more than just food, but something where the benefit comes as it is being destroyed. Yatsu Mishra Kvusa, which excludes the case of soaking and uh, laundering, Shanasan Achabiran. That first, you know, they get the, the, the uh, wine, let's use that example, gets absorbed into the flax or into the garments, and it only sort of has the effect of um, doing what you want to the flax and the garments, you know, a while after. Rashi says if you're letting it soak for a few days. So it's Hanasan Achabiran. So therefore, Shemitah can only be used for things that are like eating, that the hana, the benefit, and the, and the consumption come at the same time. For Rabbi Yehuda, nami haksiv Now, now Rabbi Yehuda, okay, it says lachem, but l'achla, shouldn't l'achla limit it to some degree? Amalacha, he'll say back to you, ha'humi ba'yalei l'chidetanya, l'achla we need for what we teach in a b'risa, d'etanya, we taught in a b'risa, l'achla v'lo limlugma, so l'achla and not for some type of a poultice, like some type of a um, bandit, you know, a, a, a salve or something that you would put um, on a wound. Um, okay, so that you can't, you can't use it for that. So why should we exclude it for that use, but allow you to use it for laundering and soaking your flax? So let's take a look. You're saying that you can't use it for a poultice because that's not like eating. Maybe it means you can't use, also, you shouldn't be able to use it for like laundering. No, lachem is a broadening word. You're allowed to use it for laundering. You can make it for all your uses. So how is lachla limiting it? Not for a poultice. So the Gemara says, so the Brite says here, Mari eats the Rabbis as a Kfusa, Lotia some Lugma, the obvious question. What's your principle that your your expansion of La'achla includes using it for laundering, but still excludes Malugma, excludes this poultice? 
No, I'll include kvusa, which is something that everybody has that use for. So it's lachem l'achlov. Lachem is a common use that any that, that people have. Everybody needs to launder clothing. I don't know about laundering it in wine, but whatever the case might be, maybe it's white grapes. Everybody needs to soak their flax, but not everybody needs a poultice. Okay, Okay, so it's sort of like what we say, you know, by Achila by Yom Tov, right? By Achila by Yom Tov, we sort of, the, the principle is about, you know, you know, Asher Yasel Nefesh, Nefesh. So we're broadening it to a type of sense of a benefit that is a common that normal people need. So what we have here is a very interesting debate between Rabbi Yehuda and the Rabbanan. The Rabbanan say that what can you use Shemitah for? Shemitah produce, la'achla, food, and, and, but an expansion of la'achla, similar to achila, things that hanasan and bi'uran shaveh, that your benefit comes when it's being consumed. Rabbi Yehuda has a broader expansion of la'achla. La'achla, you can use it for anything that is like achila, that is a need that all people have, a use that all people have, but not something that's only for a small subset of people. And now the Gemara says, um, uh, who's it going like the brighter that we teach? It says, so you can't use Shemitah produce for, a pul- for pultus, and you can't use it for like sprinkling wine to like, uh, you know, to like, like an air freshener. And not to make for it some type of a thing that would cause you to throw up. So all those are seen, seen as things that some, you know, special people need, either because you're sick or because you're finicky, but it's not a normal thing that people use. So Kiman Krebiosi, that's going like Krebiosi. It's only excluding things that are not Shavelichol Nefesh. Um, the Iker Abundant, if it was going like the rabbis, Ikanami Mishra Vakfusa should have also excluded laundry and soaking your flax. So that is the debate. La'akla is not limited to eating. How do we broaden it? Do we broaden it one stage as the rabbis of only for um, things that are Hadassan and and Shaveh? Or do we go another stage, which is Reb Yehuda, which is anything that is Shaveh Lechol Nefesh, that, that normal people need? And that's what Tosa says the tie in is to Eitim Lahasaka Tanahi. Meaning, this question of whether f- wood, firewood, has Kedusha Shemitah is, deba- is based on this de- debate of Tanaim of Rabbi Huda and the rabbis. And it's very straightforward why. Because the same Pasuk that tells you la and Lachem of what you can use Shemitah produce for, that also should be telling you what types of foods, what type of produce has Kedusha Shemitah. If you can use Shemitah produce for anything that is fit to be eaten and fit for Hanasan Ubiyos and Shaveh, then the Kedusha Shriyas applies to anything that's Hanasan Ubiyos and Shaveh that has benefit as it's consumed, which means it would apply to dyes, but it would not apply to wood. Whereas if you can use Shemitah, L'Achla, and Lachem, meaning you can use Shemitah, the Kedusha Shemitah is a, a, allows it to be used for anything that is a common use, Shaveh Nefesh, Therefore, it applies to all types of things that grow from the ground that is shavalichol nefesh, and it would apply to firewood as well. So what Kedusa Shviyas demands be eaten and then other things, Hanasana Brus and Shava, Shavalichol Nefesh.
recognized for that. So what Kedusha Shemitah demands, what you must do, the Kedusha says you must do with the fruit. You must eat it or you must get benefit as you're consuming it um, or any type of benefit that is common to everyone. What it demands also says what, that that's what it applies to, the type of produce that is made for that purpose, made to be eaten or made for a Nasa Nabiru and Shaveh or made for benefit of Shaveh Lechol Nefesh. And therefore, whether it applies to firewood is, de- is exactly dependent on that debate. Okay, now we go back to the Mishnah. We're at the two dots. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Im Okay, so here's a case where the dyer um, applied the wrong dye, red or black or whatever. Rabbi Meir says, you know, Shinoi is Kone, and that, um, that the, the dyer now, because he made it different from what the person wanted, he now owns the wool and he has to pay the owner for the pe- cost of the wool. Where Rabbi Huda says, Shinoi is not Kone, or at least maybe we'll say, a Shinoi in this type of a context where it was a mistake and you weren't trying to steal it, you're not Kone, and it's still the original owner's wool. But because you, the dyer, made a mistake and that wasn't what he wanted, so he has the upper hand. And he'll pay you for either your expenses, not your labor, but your like, you know, material expenses. Um, and you're like, if you know, if you ever get your car fixed, you know, parts, uh, labors a lot is a very big piece of that bill. So either he'll pay you for the, ex- for the parts, you know, the expenses, but not the labor, or for the amount in which the value of the wool increased, whichever is less. That's Rabbi Yehuda's position. Okay, now let's take a look at the Gemara. Yosef, Rabbi Yosef, Achreid, Rabbi Abba, Kamed, Rabbi Huna. So Rabbi Yosef was sitting behind Rabbi Abba. So Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Abba were both hearing a shear from Rav Huna. Yosef, Rav Huma, Vakaman. Rabbi Huna was sitting and saying, Halach, Rabbi Yosho ben Karcha. We rule like Rabbi Yosho ben Karcha. We'll see in which case in a minute. Rabbi Huda, and we rule like Rabbi Huda, which is our Rabbi Huda. Adrina, Rabbi Yosef, Lape. So Rabbi Yosef turned his face away from, you know, from Rav Huna. He did not agree with what Rav Huna was saying. Um, Amar, he said, I understand that you're saying we were like Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha. We'll, again, we'll see which one in a minute. That you needed to tell me. I would have thought that normally he's a Das Yachid in whichever debate we're talking about. And we would normally think like you go by the majority. So there were, you're telling me, in this case, we will like the, the minority opinion. Now, before we get on to understanding the Rabbi Yehuda thing, which upset him, let's figure out what this Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha is. Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha Mahi, what's this teaching of Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha? To tell you, we taught in the Brisa. Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha Omer, Milva b'shtar eni frayim mehen, Milva peni frayim mehen. Neishu kmeitzel miyadam. So you're not allowed to um, do business with non-Jews or with pagans, whatever idol worshippers, three days before their holidays. Um, but um, and doing business includes uh, getting your loans paid from them, paying back your loans, getting your loans paid from them. And Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha makes a distinction. He says if you've got documentation. It's a milval star, then you don't get it paid back during these three days before because you'll always be able to prove it in court and get it paid back later. But if it's only an oral loan and you have no evidence and therefore it's at risk and you have an opportunity now to get it paid back, then you can collect because it is made to miyadam, you're saving that money from their hands, it might, that money might get lost and therefore I will allow you to collect even right before their holidays. Okay, so that is a das yachid, but we pask in that way. Ella halach Rabbi Yehuda Lamli. Why do you have to rule like Rabbi Yehuda of our Mishnah? Machlokas stami. It's a debate in our Mishnah between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir, but it's followed by a Stam Mishnah, and we'll see the Stam Mishnah in a minute. And our general ruling is that if you have a debate in one Mishnah, a Stam that occurs, you know, an anonymous Mishnah that does not mention the debate and anonymously goes by one opinion, you go by the anonymous Mishnah. 
And how is that this case? Um, the debate is here in our mission in Baba Kama. So he red or he did red and he did black. You want a black? He did red. Rabbi Meir Omer nosing lo demains maro. Rabbi Meir says that you pay him for the wool and you the dye or keep the wool. Rabbi Yudo Meir ima shevach yetsal yetsia nosing lo es yetsia vam yetsia yisera la shevach nosing lo es har shevach. You pay him whichever is less the increased value of the wool or his expenses. Okay, so that's the debate. Vistam bebaba mitzia, and then in baba mitzia we have a stam mishnah that says just teach you straight like Reb Yehuda. Titnan kol mishana yadolachtona. Anybody who switches, and meaning in this type of a case, like you have a craftsman, a tr- you know that did different than what he was uh, told to do, he has the lower hand. The, so the owner has the upper hand, and that would mean can demand will have the right to pay the lesser of the benefit or the um, or the expenses. And if somebody backs out of a contract then the uh, other side has the upper hand. And that's, anyways, but the first clause is definitely seen to apply to the case of our Mishnah. So why did you have to pass in Allah Rabbi Yehuda? It's obvious that's a later Mishnah. Okay, that's anonymous that way. Rav Huna, so why did Rav Huna feel you needed to pass in like Rabbi Yehuda? It's true, he needed it. I would have thought that maybe we say, there's no particular order to the Mishnayot. You can't infer anything from the order, right? Maybe they were originally taught in a different order, even though obviously they were eventually organized by Rebbe, but maybe you can't infer something like it didn't, they weren't taught chronologically. So therefore, the idea of which is first and which is last is not really a meaningful statement, okay? Ain't say to the Mishnah. Maybe it's the reverse. Maybe if we're thinking chronologically, the Stam, you know, preceded the debate. All right, Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef would say back, if that's true, then you, how can you say that? Every time we say it's a machlokas and then a stam, say, how do you know what the order is, right? Maybe it was taught in the opposite order. You can't infer anything from the order. Yeah, we have a principle of machlokas v'achach stam. According to you, that principle can never be applied. So the name ain't say to the mission, but stam bachach machlokas. See, let's say every stam followed by a machlokas might be a machlokas and then a stam. Rafuna now, Rafuna would say back, no. Ki lo amin an ain't say to the mission. I don't mean obviously there's never an order. I mean, when do I mean there's not an order? When would I not say that there's not an order? It's a double negative. When would I concede that there is an order? In one mesechet. Okay, in one mesechet, we think that, you know, maybe we're, again, there's a Rebbe Yehuda organized it in a meaningful way, and if he had a debate taught earlier and a stam later, he meant to say this stam now is the consensus or is the halachic opinion. There we can say within one mesechet, it's ordered in a meaningful way. Um, then we would say that there's no order. Okay, so you can't infer something. Each mesechet is like a, you know, is like an entity onto itself. And you can't infer something from something that appears in one mesechet and something in another, which is first and which is later. Within a mesechet, that's one entity and there the order matters. Okay, so that's that makes a lot of sense. So what why what would Rev Yosef say back that he considers it a stam on Achikach Machlokes? 
Rav Yosef, he would say, Kulu Nezikin Okay, but you know, all of Nezikin is really one Mesechet. The reason it's called Babakama, first gate, middle gate, last gate, is because Nezikin originally was 30 prakim long, and that's way too big for a Mesechet. So we divide it into first third, middle third, and last third. And you know what? Mesechet Kalim in Taros is also 30 prakim long, and it is a Babakama, Babamatiya, and Bababasra. So really that is conceptually one big thing, and you can order is meaningful throughout those three Bavas. And if you want, I'll say, it's not just because it's that he felt it was obvious we were like Rabbi Yehuda, but because it's taught in a list of things that are like categorical statements. Whoever, you know, whoever does something, you know, in the wrong way, he has the lower hand. Whoever backs out of contact, he has the lower hands. These are seen as certain like categorical statements and they're not just a normal stam. And therefore, it seems to be like this is the, the, the phrasing makes it clear that this is accepted halacha. So he says you didn't need to pass in Rabbi Yehuda. Either way, it's clear we were like Rabbi Yehuda. Now, as I said, you know, the Gemara sometimes frames the debate in Rashi about Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir whether Shinoi is Kone, but we rule normally Shinoi is Kone, and here we rule like Rabbi Yehuda that it's not like the, you keep the wool, it's the original owner keeps the wool and just figures out what to pay you. So it probably, so, so, so what I'm saying here, Shinoi is not Kone, it means in this case, not about a, somebody who's a goslin and then did a shinoi, but you know, you were a worker, you were trying to do the right thing, you accidentally did the wrong thing, that is not enough to make you now take possession of that object. It still belongs to the original owner, and we have to figure out now what the owner is going to pay you. Okay, Tanarabanan, last line on Hanosin Somebody gives money to his messenger. To purchase wheat, and instead he purchases barley. Now, we're going to see that we're talking about a case where you're actually doing this not because you're sending somebody to the store because you're making uh, bread, bread, but because you are, act, you are trying to invest. You're doing, you're, you know, it's a business deal. You're doing it as product, and you're going to buy it and resell it. So you had told him to buy wheat, and instead he buys barley. So more the reverse. We teach one brisa in pichsu pichsu lo v'mosiro siro lo that basically the person that you um, that that switched from what you said did barley instead of wheat or whatever he basically now owns the barley and the wheat and if the barley or the, if it goes down in value he suffers the loss if it goes up in value he gets the gain he has to pay you for whatever like if you advanced him the money or you gave him the money to purchase for you he's got to repay you whatever money the amount of the money it was but it's his barley or it's his wheat he changed from what you said. Okay, that's one opinion. And we taught another brisa in pichsu pichsu lo, No, it's sort of split. If it goes down in value, he suffers the loss. If it goes up in value, then you split it. Now, what sense does that make? So it seems that the case was one in which had he done the right thing, the deal was you go, you buy the wheat, you guys buy the barley, it's my money, but you're doing the effort. Maybe you're also going to resell it, okay? And what we'll do is we'll split the profits and we'll split the loss, okay? I contribute the money, you contribute the effort, we split the profits, we split the loss. That would be if it was sort of normally done that way. Some people might be thinking that sounds a little bit like ribis, but no, since he's also going to split the loss, it's not like ribis. Ribis is when the balabias is assured the principle. Okay, so that's normally how, 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 how it would be. But because this guy did the wrong thing, let's say I was the one who was investing in the money, I'm not going to let his mistake hurt me. 
So if he bought barley, then now it's going down in value, and I wanted him to buy wheat. It was his mistake. He's got to suffer the loss. However, since in the end it was my money and he did purchase it for me and all of that, if it goes up in value, we'll go by original agreement that then we will actually split the profit. And that's what will happen. Now, I should pause for a minute and just say, before we go on to analyze this any further, that this actually is like a great deal for the guy who gives the money. And it's almost sort of like it could be a, it could be a way of actually getting interest for your money. You go ahead and you give, you know, $1,000 to a person and he goes ahead and buys something different than what you told him to do. Okay, in that case, um, so what will happen? Um, he, if it goes down in value what he bought, that's his loss, but you still have the right, you know, to get back the value of your money. So your investment is secured because any loss of principal, he suffers and you don't suffer. But any profit, you actually get half the profit. So here's a way that you're giving your money, your principal is secure, and you're going to get, if you might not necessarily get it if it doesn't turn a profit, but, you, but if it does turn a profit, you will get profit with a secure principal. So this might be a sort of a roundabout way to arrange for a certain type of, you know, uh, charging interest. And Tosos actually says that. Tosos actually points out that according to this, you could sort of do it with a wink and a nod. And you could go ahead and say to somebody, okay, here's $10,000. I want you to lend this money out for me, let's say. Um, let's say lend it out to non-Jews and charge them interest or whatever. Um, but, um, but you can only, only if... I'm only allowing you to do it if you put it in like the Brinks safe, in you know, in a huge uh, care, you know, safe that's like cost you ten thousand dollars, super secure. And I'm only letting you do it if you make sure that you get gold and silver as collateral. And that's all sort of said with like a wink and a nod. Now this guy's going to go ahead and he's going to lend out the money and get interest, and he's not going to follow those instructions. So what's that going to mean? That's going to mean that I am going to be able to get half of the profits. Okay, with my principal secure. And so it's an interesting way. This penalty here actually creates a nice little workaround and a loophole. Anyway, that's what we have here according to the second breakdown. Now let's understand what this debate is about. It's the debate between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda. Our Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Meir that says Shinui is Kone. So now this is different. This is not you're doing a Shinui on the object and you're putting red dye rather than black dye. Okay, but what you're doing is you're changing from the instructions of the Balabayas. So once you change from the instructions and you bought barley instead of wheat, it now becomes your money, your loss, your profit. It's all yours. Obviously, you have to pay back the original money, just like our Mishnah. Pay back the wool, it's all yours. Okay, when you change from the instructions of the Balabayas. Baha Rabbi Yehuda, and the other position is Rabbi Yehuda. Amar Shinui Enokone, that yes, you change from the instructions, but it's still his money, it's still his, his wheat or his barley. Again, because you made a mistake, you're going to suffer the loss. But it's still his, and therefore, you will continue to split the profit as the original deal was. That's Rabbi Yochanan says. Maskif le Rabbi Lezer. Rabbi Lezer challenges me. My who says that's what's going on? Yilma ad kan lo kam Rabbi Meir ele bimidi dechazi lelegufe. Maybe Rabbi Meir 
only said, you know, this idea that Shinui is Kona when it is something you were planning on using for yourself. You wanted, you know, a red red wool because you were going to make yourself a red garment or a black garment, you know. So it was something that you had a, you personally cared whether it was red or black or how it was done. And therefore, when you go against that, Shinui Kona. I would mean but if you're doing it for trade, lo ama, he wouldn't have said it. Because you know, then it's all product. What do I care really if it's barley or wheat? I only care if it turns if it turns a profit. Now, okay, but you might care barley or wheat because you think one of them is going to turn a profit more than the other. But what he is claiming is, is that maybe for Rebbe Mayer, this idea of that you really violated and it becomes yours is much more when you're sort of when the particulars really matter, not when you're just seeing it as product. Okay, and if it's product, then fine. It's still, it's, it's not enough of a violation to that it becomes, you know, the shaliachs. It's still yours. It doesn't become the one who, vi- who, who changed it. But again, he will suffer any loss. El Amar Rebbe Lazar, Hava Rebbe Meir. Oh, so if you can say that, then we can have both of these cases going like Rebbe Meir. V'lo kasha, kan l'chila, kan l'schora. Okay, if you're sending your shaliach to buy wheat and he buys barley or the reverse because you actually want to make bread, then if he violates what you said, according to Rebbe Mayer, that's like the red and the black and so on, and it's now his money, his wheat, his barley, and he has to pay you back the money. However, if you're sending him to do it for an investment, in that case, since for you it's all just product, as long as he will suffer any of the loss because he didn't listen to you, you're totally, you know, then it's still enough that it's yours and you will still get half of the profit. Okay, so that's the debate. Oh, that's the two ways of explaining it. A debate of Rebbe and Rebbe Meir or within Rebbe Meir. In Eretz Yisrael, they laughed about Rabbi Yochanan's position. Now, that's pretty funny because Rabbi Yochanan is from Eretz Yisrael. Normally, it's somebody says something in Bavel and they laugh about it in Eretz Yisrael. Anyway, they laughed about this, about Rabbi Yochanan's position in Eretz Yisrael. Alibed Rabbi Yehuda, based on Rabbi Yehuda. Because Rabbi Yehuda, remember, what was his idea? His idea was for Rabbi Yehuda, Shino is not going to hear again, Shino not meaning a change in the object, but going against instructions. So the Shaliach bought barley instead of wheat, even though he went against instructions. He, you know, it's still, the money is still belongs to the Balabayas, and therefore, you know, the, the barley belongs to the Balabayas with the provision that the Shaliach, because he messed up, will suffer any loss, okay? But he says, one minute. I don't get it. Since this guy, the Shaliach, is not following the instructions of the Balabayas, so when the owner of the wheat, let's say he was told to get barley and he gets wheat, when the owner of the wheat is giving it to the shaliach, okay, the shaliach is not operating according to the wishes of the balabayas. So, the, you know, how is the balabayas being kona the wheat? The shaliach isn't representing him, and the, you know, and the owner of the wheat isn't intending that it should be owned to the balabayas. He only sees the shaliach in front of him. So how does this happen? I get that it's not like he stole the money or whatever, but since he's not representing him, I still don't get how the balabayas winds up owning the wheat. Okay, that's what he asks. Since, you know, the balabayas is still going to get half the profits, as we've been saying, it's clear that the balabayas does own it with the, with the point that the shaliach suffers the loss. But how does the balabayas own it? And Rashi points out, that this is particularly sharp according to, you know, Reb Yochanan, right? Because for Reb Yochanan, it really is 
clear violation of the will of the Balabayas. That's why he said it's a debate of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Meir. What do you do about a case of a major violation? And once it's a major violation of the will of the Balabayas, then how is it that the, he's seen as a shaliach? And how does the Balabayas get ownership of this wheat? But Rashi says, but according to, uh, to Rabbi Lezer, remember Rabbi Lezer said, nah, even Rabbi Meir would agree, it's all just product. So if it's all just product, it's not a big violation, really, then we can say that he still represents the Balabayas. But for Rabbi Yochanan, if it is a real violation, and that's why Rabbi Meir says that, that the, you know, it's a Shinoi, then why did Rabbi, how can Rabbi Yehuda say that the, that the Balabayas owns it? The Shaliach is not representing the Balabayas by buying wheat instead of barley. Okay, so we don't have, so before we answer, we're going to answer a question with another question. So Rav Shmuel Basrati challenged this question. So if that's true, then, you know, the guy who's selling, I mean, the answer is going to be obvious. When this shaliach comes to buy the wheat, the seller doesn't know that, you know, Reuven sent the shaliach. He just sees the shaliach in front of him. So how does Reuven wind up owning the wheat, even if the guy is doing exactly what he was asked? So Amr Rabbi Yavo, no, that's obvious. Shani Okay, No, no, no. As long as the shaliach is doing what he was told, then, then it doesn't matter. The seller thinks he's sending it to the shaliach, but the shaliach represents the balabayas. That we get. But once you're saying it's a shinui, and the shaliach is, you know, is a mishana and all of that, then how can he be representing the balabayas? And how does the wheat get owned by the balabayas? Now, I'll show you that that's true, that we say that you represent, you know, even if the guy doesn't know who you're representing. That's not. We taught in the Mishnah, as long as you're doing the shlichos. Okay, so somebody went ahead and he said, all my property I'm giving to the base of Mikdash. Okay, or he said, my, you know, my value I am dedicating to the base of Mikdash. And now the, so in the first case, you have to figure out all of his property. You look at all his property and you, sh- and you take a moving van and you schlep it away. Even when he says, I owe, you know, $1,000 to the base of Mikdash, you know, you you have to go and see if he doesn't have that money in cash. You go to see what property he has to collect from. So you can collect from all of his. So you know, certainly let's focus on the first case. You really schlep away all his property. But here's what he's not sanctifying. You know, the clothing, his wife's clothing, that's not included in his hektesh, and his children's clothing. And if he, you know, if he bought some dye and he was, you know, and dyed their clothing or whatever, you know, that's, you know, that. So if he's buying dye or if he's buying sandals, all those things, even if he hasn't given it to him them yet, they are not included when he says, I'm sanctifying them. Now, the point is, one minute, if he hasn't given them the sandals yet, let's look at the sandals case, then then why isn't that sanctified? He said, all my property, and he hasn't given it to them yet. So it talks about the case of the dye, but the sandals is the easier one, right? Who said, if he said, hey, go ahead and dye this garment for me red, right? And he didn't, and he didn't tell the, uh, the dyer that it was his wife's garment, or he bought sandals, right? So it doesn't belong to the wife yet. He has, you know, the, 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 the dyer or the guy selling the sandals didn't know that it was for the wife and didn't have intent to transfer it to the wife. And nevertheless, it sounds like it already belongs to the wife and the hektish doesn't apply to it. It must be that even though the dyer doesn't know and the shoe seller doesn't know, 
the husband is representing his wife, even though she didn't appoint him. He's doing her a benefit. That's the idea of zochin. He's representing his wife, and even as by representing his wife and doing what you know, the, therefore it is acquired by her. He's like an extension of his wife. And the seer for the same would be true. As long as the shaliach is doing what he was told, then then the seller doesn't have to know that he's serving as an agent. It's just you know he's on, he is in his capacity. An extension of the balabayas and the wheat goes to him. But it's, once he does something that is considered a shinoi, okay, so much that Rabbi Meir would say that he's kone and it breaks it completely, then the Gemara says even if Rabbi Yudah is not, he's not kone, the money or the wheat or whatever, how is it that he represents the balabayas and this wheat now is owned by the balabayas? So, and, uh, so, th- and, and, but we don't have a problem when he's doing what he was told to do, because then he clearly is an extension. So, we're not done with this. Amar Rebbe Abba, lo, that's not a proof. That case of the guy buying the sandals for who is his wife is not a proof that when the shaliach is doing it, he, autom- he you know, he, he, you know it, it automatically works even if you don't inform the seller. Why? How else would you explain it? It could be that the sandals still don't belong to his wife yet because he hasn't brought them home yet to give it to his wife. And nevertheless, the hectic doesn't apply to the sandals because even though he says all my property, he's not thinking about the stuff that his wife owns or that he intends to give to his wife. That's not what he is intending. So you really can't prove from here that he purchased it for, that his wife owns it, you know, without the seller knowing. Because it might just be he wasn't intending to include it in his hectic, even if the wife didn't own it. So Maski Flor Rebbe Zerah, if Zerah challenged that challenge, the Chidaito Shalado Matfilav, no, what do we care whether he was thinking about it or not thinking about it? If he says, I'm sanctifying all my property, do you think he wanted to sanctify his tefillin? Presumably not, okay? If it's non, if somebody sanctifies all their property, malin lo tefillin, you basically, you know, assess the value of the tefillin and you make him redeem the tefillin and you give the money to the base on Mikdash so that he can keep on wearing the tefillin. But what you see is he sanctified the tefillin. So clearly, once you say all my property, we take you literally, even if you would have wanted to or not wanted to. So clearly, yes, his wife must own those sandals already. Amalei Abaye, Abaye still resists. In, yes, Daito Shalala Maltfilin, when he says all my property, he is still thinking about his filling. He's thinking about everything. Okay? Daito Shalala Maltfilin, Hamakish Nechasev Savar, Mitzvah If you're sanctifying your property, you think, look, I'm doing a mitzvah. Okay? I'm doing a mitzvah, so it's okay. My filling also. Okay? That, um, that you, you don't think to exclude it. But you don't, but even in that case, you mean to exclude, you know, your, your, the clothing of your wife and children or even the clothing intended for them. Why? Why would that be more clearly excluded? Mishum Eva, for hatred, okay? You don't want your wife and children yelling at you that you're stripping them in their closets and giving it away to Hektesh. So, you know, if it's between you and God and you're giving your tefillin to Hektesh, you know, you figure, okay, I'm doing a mitzvah, God will understand. And anyway, we make you redeem it, okay? But clearly, you know, you're thinking about, you don't want to get yelled at from, you know, your wife or children, so clearly you're not planning on doing anything that's going to get you into trouble, okay? And therefore, you do not include stuff that belongs to them, and you can, or that is going to them. And therefore, you can't prove from this that 
that this idea that even if the store owner doesn't know and the seller doesn't know, it goes to the person you're representing. So we're still not done. Maskit Rav Oshia, Rav Oshia's challenge. That can work that you don't mean, that you mean to exclude or you don't mean to include stuff that's going to your wife in the first case when you sanctify the property. But, but there were two cases about excluding the wife's clothing. One place was you sanctified. The other was you just accepted, you know, your erech, you know, your value, whatever, $1,000 to the base of Mikdash. And then the basin is going to come and see what property they can collect from. So that is, that's against your will. That has nothing to do with what you sanctified. That is the basin coming and showing up and seizing property. And therefore, it's a question, it's a strict question of who owns the property, you or your wife. That when people own money for an Erech, you go ahead and you seize their property as collateral. Now, clearly, you don't want your property seized as collateral, but it doesn't matter, okay? You wanted to give $1,000, and if you don't have the money, they're going to seize it against your will. We don't care what you want or don't want. So there, and nevertheless, they can't take the stuff that's going for your wife, all right? So you see that, um, so you see that it seems like good evidence that even without the store owner knowing, if you represent somebody, it goes to that person. But no, we're going to push it off one final time. When you are about to sanctify your property, and presumably this also means when you're about to accept some hectic debt upon yourself, okay, you in your mind, again, because you don't want to get yelled at, you in your mind are, it's as if, meaning probably Chazal made it as if, okay, because what you would want is to keep their property off limits. So therefore, you, stuff that is going to them, it's like you've already transferred it to them, and that took place before you were maktish or before you put yourself in a situation where the base of mikdash could come and take collateral. Uh, and it's nasekimi, it means chazal treated as if, because that's what we need to do in order to like, make society run smoothly, we treat it as if that transfer occurred. So basically what it's saying is that case of hektish is an exception, okay? Yes, it's true, maybe, we could say the wife does not own those sandals that you bought for her, in principle, but because of that special case of Maktish, we're going to make it as if she does own it. But as a general rule, we have yet to prove that just because you're representing your Mishaleach, you're representing the one who sent you, that that property, that, that the seller, you know, if he doesn't know that you're representing that person, we still have a big question mark whether actually that property transfers to the, to the person sending it to you. Okay, so just to repeat, and we'll end for here today, according to, the question is, according to Reb Yehuda, that it's really considered, according to, you know, Reb, uh, um, Reb Yochanan, that sees that this is a debate of Reb Yud and Reb Meir, that buying wheat as opposed to barley is a real shinoi, and for Reb Meir you're Kona, and for Reb Yehuda you're not Kona. So, okay, we said you're not Kona, but it still belongs to the person who sent it to you, who, who, you, know, who, you know, who sent the shaliach, it still belongs to the mishaleach, and he gets half the profit, but he doesn't suffer the loss because of it's the shaliach's fault, but it still belongs to the mishaleach. And the challenge here is, if this is considered to be a real shinoi, a real violation of the wishes, then why is it that the original sender now owns the wheat or barley? Okay, but we, and, and, and what's being challenged now is the question about, well, why is it that way? Even if he's doing the will of the Balabayas, 
isn't it necessary that the seller has to know that it's going to the Mishaleach? And that's what's being questioned now. So if the seller does know, and even in the case when he's doing the right thing, when he's buying told wheat and bought wheat, the seller knows that, it ha- that he, it's going to the Mishaleach and the Shaleach is informing him, I'm representing Mr. Jones, and the seller has intent to give it to Mr. Jones, then that can also be our answer when there's a violation. Even when there's a violation, the seller is intending that the barley go to Mr. Jones. The seller doesn't know there's a violation. So as long, so if you explain the whole case that the seller has been informed that it's, it's for Mr. Jones, we have an answer to our question. Then whether he's doing the right thing or not doing the right thing, the seller intends to transfer the wheat or the barley to Mr. Jones. Okay, and that, everything works smoothly. However, if the seller doesn't know, then the Gemara is stuck because then we understand why it works when the shaliach is doing the right thing, but we don't understand why it works when the shaliach is doing the wrong thing. Okay, we will stop here for now.